one of the things that separates us from animals as human beings is that we can inquire into the truth we can ask questions we can learn from our experience so for many of us who come to practice Buddhism that's how we began be interested to find out what the Buddha had to say about life and to understand more how suffering arises for us as, a, as human beings and what we can do about it. That often, that search often begins with books, listening to talks, and often gains momentum when we meet fellow practitioners or teachers who not only pass on the words of the Buddha and explain the way of practice but, but can provide some example that we can look to, follow and, and feel good about when we with those teachers feel that they have something to offer which makes us want to practice and it's not necessarily that we have to be experiencing a lot of deep states of suffering or traumatic experiences that make us seek like this, seek for a way out. For some it is, but many people it's just waking up, the process of waking up to the truth of existence. And we refer to the Buddha as the awakened one, which implies for the rest of us, the untrained, the unenlightened, that we're still asleep. We may be awake in body, but asleep in mind, to the truth. But hearing the words of the Buddha starts the process of awakening. And we notice that life is bound up with the unsatisfactory, and there's a sense of incompleteness in our experience. It's not that there's no happiness at all, there's no feelings of well-being, there are, but it's not complete. And the experience of dukkha, suffering, keeps re-emerging in small ways and then sometimes in large ways profound ways. But when we encounter the words of the Buddha, for most people it gives a sense of um, 
hopeful expectation that we can do something about it. And that in itself can bring some joy, some happiness. Brings <clears throat> some faith, uh, belief and confidence that there are those the Buddha and those enlightened students of the Buddha who have found a way through and ultimately out of suffering. And then also faith based on the understanding that we too can do the same thing. The potential lies within all of us. This can be a joyous moment, maybe just very brief, but sometimes the, the happiness of discovering the path, discovering the teachings can be long-lasting. And it's something we have to keep returning to as bhikkhus, monastics. We have to remind ourselves why we're practicing, what the point of it is, and refresh our memory, refresh our understanding of what the goals are. So living with Kalyanamitta, good teachers, good people can sometimes help with that by living with people who are a living embodiment of the teachings. But still we have to go back to our own mind, our own heart and remind ourselves what our inspiration and purpose or reason for practice is. <coughs> When we come to the practice, we talk about the Eightfold Noble Path as the framework of our practice, as part of the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And it's a common question in the beginning is if it's wisdom that liberates us from the causes of suffering, you know, why does the Eightfold Path begin with wisdom? Samaditi. People used to ask this question from Ajahn Chah, you know, what quality do you need to begin, begin practicing the Dhamma? And he often would answer, wisdom. Even though traditionally in forest monasteries you hear the, the way of practice is centered around sila, samadhi and panya, as though sila is the beginning. But Ajahn Chah said, wisdom is the beginning. But we have many levels and depths to wisdom. There's the mundane, and there's the super mundane. And we begin our practice with just the realization that we need to practice. And that's in your a moment of wisdom or insight. And it may lead on to observing precepts, developing meditation, samatha meditation, vipassana meditation. But there has to be wisdom in the beginning. And the arising of 
wisdom, so the initial mundane level of wisdom or right view, they compare to the sun coming up at dawn, which we are fortunate to regularly see here. If you look, it's the globe of the sun coming over the hill. It's like that happiness and radiance of at least some basic level of understanding and faith that we can practice and that there is a way to improve ourselves and get away from suffering. One way they refer to the path is the, the area path, the area marker. One definition of area is that which is, takes us far away from our enemies. So the causes of suffering are rooted in avicca, ignorance, in short and then manifest as greed, anger, delusion in our mind. And we tend to summarize that as kilesa, mental defilements are the causes of suffering. They afflict our mind. So they are considered the enemies. Sometimes it's useful to talk in this way. The enemy is the thing you that causes you suffering, causes you trouble. It's the thing you don't want. It's the thing you want to end or get away from, defeat. So the area path is what takes you away from your enemies, the kilesas. Just hearing that there is such a path, that there are those people who have done it, can be of great inspiration and joy, happiness. When skepticism arises, then we may have doubt. Is it really true? Are these people really enlightened? Was the Buddha enlightened? Are these people enlightened? We may not have all the information and knowledge to answer that completely but one way I looked at it in the beginning was well they certainly know more than I do and they if you listen to the teachers the way they explain say Ajahn Chah you listen to his talks read his talks and you can't be absolutely sure whether he's enlightened or not but he certainly is a very wise person and those who've lived with him, luckily enough to live with him, also had the feeling, the sense this is a wise person and a peaceful, compassionate person. You might not know absolutely, but you have enough faith, belief that this is a, a wise, enlightened teacher that you can follow. And fortunately, there's other teachers around as well. So not just one, but many which just reinforces that faith and that is vital for us to proceed with developing this Eightfold Path 
It's a vital factor in the arising of right view, listening to the true Dhamma, reflecting on it, meeting with practitioners, following their teachings. The heart of mundane right view is the teaching on karma, which again, we may not yet fully have penetrated. We may not have the divine eye and be able to see beings arise and pass away into different states of existence. But on a daily basis, we can investigate and maybe come to some understanding of just ordinary karma at work, the way our actions through body, speech and mind bring consequences, bring results, and we are the ones experiencing those results. That much we can confirm. And this is Gamma Sakata Samaditi. It's the basic understanding that we are the owners of our karma. Our intentional actions of body, speech and mind matter. They are a huge factor in our experience of happiness or unhappiness. <coughs> Whatever else is going on in the world or around us, other people, it comes back to our karma, what we're doing. And although many of the results are not immediately obvious, especially because we're in a state of being unawake and we're in the middle of training, we may not notice everything, but we'll notice some when we begin investigating. And that should be enough for us to be satisfied that it's, it is a, a principle that's underlying human behavior that we can see at work and trust in as a way of explaining things. So before we encountered the Buddhist teachings or before we thought about them seriously, how often would we attribute our problems and suffering in life to unknown causes, to things just being random, coming out of the universe from nowhere, not knowing what to do or who to blame or sometimes attributing to a creator god or a deity or this or that but from again for myself coming in contact with the teaching on karma and then taking it as a working hypothesis and just looking at my own experience very quickly I decided it's a very useful way to understand life and what happens and why and particularly to become more careful and more responsible for what I think, say and do because I can see it comes back to me all the time. So the ordinary level of right view that we begin with, which we do take partly on the level of faith, belief, and we listen and learn and develop this right view from external sources, well, very quickly it can become 
something that you internalize and it's no longer just on the level of faith and belief that you start appreciating it is, it's true it, it is the way things are at least on some level and this we call mundane right view It's accepting and seeing that the, our actions are important and particularly the efficacy of good action, skillful action. It matters because it affects us. It affects our experience of the world, <clears throat> our experience of pleasure and pain, our level of happiness. On the worldly level, well, the teaching on karma can also be used and is used by many for inspiring them to work hard, accumulate wealth, seek out the pleasures of the world, because that all falls within uh, the law of karma. But on the deeper level, we, we start to investigate to see, well, that's still limited. You know, the wealth of the world is impermanent doesn't last, even though you call it yourself, your own, you, you say it belongs to you. It doesn't really, because it goes according to causes and conditions. The happiness we can experience with family, friends, living in this world, using our senses, is temporary. So although we begin with that understanding of karma, if you keep practicing and keep looking, then it leads on to a seeking, searching for a deeper level of understanding, looking for something more complete, more lasting, more solid, that leads on to the investigation and practice of the Four Noble Truths, which is the basis for the super-mundane right view that will take us beyond the suffering completely. But that has to come through practice. We can't last on faith and belief forever. It has an important role to play and it is something we have to renew, but as we develop our practice, we have to start translating or transforming the faith into real personal experience. And that requires effort. So as we talk about the five spiritual faculties, the satar is followed by wiriya. And it's a teaching the Buddha taught us to put effort into the practice. Lumpocha taught us to put effort into the practice. One who wants to overcome suffering, go beyond suffering, has to put forth effort. There's no way around it. So often when suffering is our starting point, you're suffering and then somebody says, well, you have to make effort to get beyond it. Sometimes that doesn't sound attractive because we're already suffering and that's the reason we begin practice. Sounds like more work, more hardship, more difficulty. But as 
we've already, all of us have probably found and can continue to experience, we can find that even though there is some hardship and difficulty when you put forth effort into the practice, it brings results. That's probably where the beginning of the super mundane right viewing starts and where it begins is when you have some realization that if you put forth effort to develop the path, observe the precepts and the Vinaya, put effort into abandoning unwholesome mental states and developing wholesome states, develop mindfulness, develop states of calm, investigate the truth, then we can experience some relaxation and quietening down of the mind and some happiness. And that is enough, it's a taste that will keep us going. It's essential in our practice to keep re-establishing right view and keep focusing on it. And one way to do this also is look at the opposite. Well, what is the problem with wrong view? Wrong view is what leads us to do more things that cause us suffering. Wrong view is what feeds avicca, ignorance, which feeds the calaces of greed, anger and delusion, which feeds craving, attachment and more experience of suffering. We have to think it through sometime and maybe review our own views on the practice. And do we yet, do we yet still doubt uh, the law of karma? Do we still doubt why we practice or the value of the practice? Do we still, or do we have any kind of belief or view about where we're heading in the practice? Do actions bring good results? Good actions bring good results. Bad actions bring suffering. This is a, a question that we can bring up to bring up that effort that's needed to overcome the difficulties and the calaisas which affect us so often. What's the alternative to the practice? Well, following wrong views, getting caught up more in the world and ultimately suffering more. So if we want to experience the peace and happiness that our teachers and the Buddha said can be experienced, then we practice. Maybe even on a daily basis, maybe even many times a day, you might have this simple reflection, what is good karma, what is bad? What will be the fruits of these particular actions, the way I'm thinking, speaking or acting? And there has to be that honesty and the seeking of truth in order to, to really understand karma and see it at work. 
but it's pleasant when you realize you've had a wrong view underlying some form of behavior in the past and you recognize that, become aware, and that's a pleasant experience. It's the waking up experience. And it's accompanied usually by some relief and happiness. But we have to keep reflecting in this way on karma and keep coming back to developing effort based on our faith, based on our confidence in the practice. Sometimes we need to go back and investigate dukkha and to remind ourselves again, remind ourselves why we're practicing. It's the dukkha of a human being, a human body, a human mind, or the five khandhas, pancha, upadana, khanda. They're constantly changing. This body and mind is changing all the time. We can't find any certainty or completeness in that which is changing all the time. We can't avoid heat and cold, hunger, tiredness. We can't avoid unpleasant experiences. We can't control the world that much. We begin or, or regularly return to reflecting on dukkha just to understand what it is, its nature. When dukkha arises, we tend to grasp at it straight away. And when there's no mindfulness and no insight, we'll grasp, grasp at the sense of me, myself, with that dukkha. And we have all those phrases we bring up in our thinking. So why me? Why is it like this? Why are they doing this to me? Why has this happened? I don't deserve this. It shouldn't be like this. And so on. You know, these are the expressions of a human being struggling with their dukkha. And now we're encouraged to see the dukkha as a, a noble truth. So just reflecting on it as, as it is. It is just the way it is, the way things are. often just coming back to a meditation theme that we develop regularly, sincerely, mindfully, say, recollecting the feeling of the in and out breath, in itself can be enough to remove an experience or a feeling of dukkha. Simply re-establishing mindfulness when we've been caught into a negative train of thought or we have some feeling of tension or pain or some unpleasant external experience has happened or is happening. Just returning to follow the breath in and the breath out, already some of that sense of self bound up with, with the dukkha fades. And this is you know, the beginning 
of the super-mundane samaditi, recognizing dukkha as dukkha. So it becomes something you can learn from, an object of mind, rather than just something you wallow in or get stuck in, overwhelmed by. The effort really, leading on from our faith in the practice, the effort is really directed to establishing and bringing up sati, mindfulness and clear comprehension, samprajanya, over and over again, because it cuts through the worst of the dukkha. Here I mean mental dukkha, feelings and thoughts that are still bound up with the kilesas, greed, anger and delusion. The quickest way to drop greed, anger and delusion is establish mindfulness of a wholesome object. And the dukkha that that kilesa is bringing will start to fade, if only a little bit, hopefully enough for you to see that this is the way to go. If you can sustain the mindfulness on the object, the mind might completely calm down and have that sense of spaciousness, freedom, emptiness. And again, this is a little taste of the third noble truth, the realization of the end of dukkha, cessation, it's the unconditioned. Learning and studying dukkha, we're studying the conditioned. Dukkha arises from its causes. Ignorance, craving, clinging, becoming, birth. The end of dukkha also arises from causes, with the path. Beginning with samaditi and developing all the different factors of the path, but particularly developing mindfulness and then some wisdom. And immediately we're put in touch, if only fleetingly, with the unconditioned, that which goes beyond the conditioned world. Just a, a few moments mindfully observing the breath in, breath out, and a lot of dukkha can drop away very quickly. A moment of fear, a moment of anger, a moment of lust can quickly be dispersed by putting clear attention on a meditation object like the breath. And that's the Four Noble Truths in practice, in your own mind. You're confirming what the Buddha taught, or what Lumpur Cha taught. That particular stress, tension, caused by a particular kalesa can drop away very quickly, and the mind can become calm. If we develop that more, we uphold the samaditi and then uphold our effort and keep reinforcing our effort in the practice, then we'll experience more of that. 
So our faith, confidence in the practice and our understanding of the practice will improve. You can see the it's like another seed, the way they talk about karma, like seeds that ripen. Good seeds ripen with good good results, bad seeds unwholesome, rooted in unwholesome volition, they ripen with suffering. But developing the path is developing the good seeds, nurturing them. And we can see the more we nurture the good seeds, even though the bad seeds are also ripening around us, and the causes and conditions for chelators to arise and cause of suffering are still there, still around us, but the good seeds might start to take hold, become something more substantial in our experience. If we're patient enough and we put enough effort in, your, your experience starts to change. And if you're mindful of that, you're aware of your own changing experience, even more confidence in the path will grow. You can see when you do put effort into the bringing up mindfulness, whatever the particular suffering you're experiencing, there's part of the mind that's growing in this sense of just knowing, witnessing, allowing things to be rather than getting caught up in them. So we call it detached awareness or equanimity. But it's that part of the mind that's not just running, reacting to things and getting caught up into the emotion, the feeling, the thoughts. That will grow. And there'll always be some of that there as long as we're practicing. And particularly if we put a lot of effort into the practice, it will, it will be very clear to the mind. So it's like a part of the mind or, or an experience that one can keep moving to freeing oneself from suffering. Obviously we still get caught out when time, when sometimes kilesis come up strongly in our, <clears throat> we're not particularly awake. Well, we do get overcome by some anger, greed, lust, worry, fear. But if we're getting more used to developing and nurturing the seeds of the path, then we can quickly return to them. Sometimes even it's possible to, particularly in informal meditation when you're sitting or walking, to witness a very intense emotional state based on kilesa arising, some strong greed, strong doubt, worry, fear, anger. But instead of just getting caught up into it and the normal sense of self and ownership coming up, we have enough awareness just to watch it not really get involved in it and let it go its course and then it will pass away because we're not reinforcing it. It's a bit like those um, wood heaters we use. You notice if you use a wood heater a lot, it's possible we have one part of the heater is a glowing log burning away quite happily. 
And then if you shut down the air intake, the oxygen is reduced. There may be another unburnt log in the same fire right next to the burning log. And it's possible for them to be there side by side if you reduce the oxygen, the ventilation. It's a bit like that with our mind. When you establish some mindfulness and you know how to bring up mindfulness, then sometimes there's a raging fire of kilesa comes up. But you can just let it burn its course. You watch it, but you don't follow it or indulge it because you have enough mindfulness to anchor the mind in the present moment. And you just let that fire burn out. And the rest of the mind isn't affected. It remains unburnt. Somebody once asked Ajahn Chah about, does the arahant still have kilesas? And he answered, yes, they do, but they no longer feed them or take them up. And the causes and conditions for kilesas are still there in the sense they have their old, <clears throat> their old karma giving fruition coming up, ripening, and they have their character and they still have their body and their senses. But through the training and the practice and the clarity of insight, the mind no longer takes up the kilesa. No sense of self forms around the kilesa. He compared it to putting your finger through water. You can write your name on the water the, the mark you make on the water di- disappears instantly. Nothing is left, no trace is left. And this is when super mundane right view is established, you more and more the mind goes in that direction. The calaces come up, but they no longer bother the mind, they're seen as kilesa, the cause of suffering. And if you know something is the cause of suffering, you don't grasp at it. It may still be painful at the time, but you let it pass. You don't create further suffering out of it. Because the sense of self, is, the delusion of self has been seen as delusion. As you meet fellow practitioners, say other monks, senior monks, you never, you'll never quite know what level of practice they're on, whether they're Patujina or Sotapanna, Anagami, Arahant. <clears throat> but this practice and this, the establishment of right view is a fairly universal quality that you notice particularly you know, monks who have practiced the Dhamma often for many, many years. And they've imbued, absorbed the Dhamma, imbued their mind with right view from the same beginnings that we begin with, just listening, reading, 
having a basic faith, but then internalizing it to the point where they can see a kilesa as a kilesa for what it is, and they're not going to follow it or indulge it. They know it's something to be discarded, to be abandoned, and they know it's anicca and dukkha and anatta. They know that. So it comes out in the way they practice, the way they live, the way they teach. And this is something we can all achieve very easily. It's not hard at all. You just keep practicing, keep reflecting on the Four Noble Truths, keep establishing right view. And over time, the practice, you know, the practice of mindfulness and insight deepens. In one way you can say samaditi, it's the beginning of the path, but it's also the end of the path. Our aim is to see, to realize and to penetrate the Four Noble Truths. Begin by intellectually understanding them and remembering them, discussing them. We end with just knowing them, seeing them. Knowing that, you know, the things that we grasp as self and take as very important and, and take up in a way that leads to suffering. We don't have to do that. We don't have to grasp feelings and thoughts, perceptions as self, as mine. But with a well-trained mind, we can know they're just that much. They're really empty, not to be grasped at ultimately not to be clung to, to be left as they are. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.